0: cloud. All right. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Edge of Fear podcast. My name is Liz Basil Lewison and I've got my friend Craig Stanland here. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy that we were able to connect. I am an author, a speaker, and a reinvention architect. And what that means is I coach people and I help people who have hit rock bottom, whose lives have fallen apart, and they need help rebuilding and reinventing. But I don't only just help the people who have hit rock bottom. I help people who want to start over, who are living unfulfilling lives, who are, you know, for example, somebody sitting in the cube who dreams of doing something so much more, but they're afraid to make that leap, and they don't know where to start. So I I literally help people reinvent themselves.
0: I love that, Um, I, I love that you are working on with people who are both at the bottom and also don't have to be because I think it's very, very acceptable if you're not at rock bottom, if you're just okay, you're just doing okay, you're just getting by, you have enough money that you're getting by, you know, happily that people just stay there forever. And it was very much, you know, in my last relationship, I was with the guy for five years. Um, you know, I left a few days after my 29th birthday. And it was really scary to leave that because all my friends were like getting married and having babies already all of his friends because he was three years older were married and had their babies. <laughs> so it was like, well, you're living together, like you're the next thing is you just get married. And whether it's with your relationship or your job or not pursuing, you know, your passion project or whatever the side hustle is, that is like your creative outlet. And you don't want to give it the time that it needs, whatever it is, people just get so complacent and totally okay with the everyday mundane. And you think if you're not at the rock bottomist, you know, he's not abusing you and cheating on you. Like what, good, like, why would I leave? And that was literally like my reasoning for so long for not leaving was I was like, well, he doesn't cheat on me. And it's only knocked me around once or twice. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> um, it's it's like really, it's really terrible the way that we all as a society really accept that only rock bottom is, you know, the only time that you should
1: change anything in your life. Well, I would I would actually argue that it's rock bottom is almost an easier place to start over because you at rock bottom have two choices. You can stay in the burnt ashes of what was, or you decide to take that first step and to continue with those steps out of the ashes. Everything that you just said, the, the complacency and the comfort and the security, they are all really hard to leave behind when you're at rock bottom you don't have any of those things it's really uncomfortable you don't have complacency it is a horrible place to be but like I said some people do choose to stay there but it's those those people who who are just just getting enough like you said I love the way that you said that it's just enough to be okay and to understand that there's way more than okay available to everyone out there You know, everybody can live an extraordinary life. It's just really hard to see that, especially when you have just enough. Just enough is, they're breadcrumbs that just keep you going. And it's almost better to have them completely cut off and hit that rock bottom to be able to just start over from there.
0: Totally, oh man. I mean, I could have a whole hour long conversation with you just about this part because like, I, that hasn't even been like a perspective that I've taken yet of that. Like some people do accept that rock bottom, like that's just their life now. And like, I immediately went to like, you know, family or friends or friends of friends who have just like overdosed and then like remain there, you know, and like stay in the, these like habits, these, these totally not serving them anymore habits. And there is only one way to go, but up, uh, but, or you can stay there. And I never even considered that because when Every time that I've felt like I've hit rock bottom, like I've opened another door and what a privilege that has been for me. And maybe it is, you know, so much to do with like mindset um, and background and wealth and family support and things like that. Um, but so interesting to, you know, to be in that other side of this now where you're, you're in the driver's seat to really be able to help those people who want to be helped um so i'm really excited to start this conversation with you um to talk about you know all the things that we've said we're going to talk about how you know being vulnerable and forgiving yourself is like such the most important part um because we all just do things and have done things that maybe we aren't the most proud of um how to build trust how like reading has taken us on this journey so um I think the first thing that we connected on was uh, about forgiving yourself. So I'd love to get started kind of talking about that. And maybe if you want to share some of your story um, so that listeners kind of know where where that came from, your your need to forgive
1: yourself. Yeah, I would, I would love to share my story because it does really give context for everything that we've talked about and are going to talk about. And I will do it in a shorter fashion. So- in- <laughs> In 2012, uh, I had what many would say was it all. I had a unbelievably successful sales career as a uh, enterprise account manager for a major technology company. I owned multiple homes, multiple beautiful cars. I was married to an incredible, amazing woman. I wore stunning watches. I was a VIP at some of the best restaurants in Manhattan and Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, I was really, I was living the life. But I didn't feel worthy of any of those things. I felt like an imposter. I felt empty. And what ended up happening was my identity had become so inextricably tied to my things that buying and becoming this person who could go out and buy anything and acquire pretty much anything became my identity and it became very addictive. At the same time as that addiction is kicking in, my paychecks are getting smaller and smaller because what I sell was getting commoditized, so our margins were shrinking, so my commission checks were getting smaller. It was a really horrible equation. I had discovered a way to exploit our partner company's warranty policy for my financial gain. And I did that for just under a year until the FBI arrested me on October first, two 2013. I pled guilty to one count of mail fraud I was sentenced to two years of federal prison and I lost absolutely everything. I lost the homes. I lied to my wife and I told her what I was doing was okay. I broke that sacred trust that is a foundation of marriage or any relationship and she left me. I lost all my cars. There's a court order barring me from my old career. Because my identity was so inextricably tied to my things without them I had no idea who I possibly was. I, was. I was nobody. I was the person who destroyed his life. And I had also destroyed what I think is one of the greatest gifts of being a human, of this existence that we have, which is love. You know, I lied to my wife and I, I destroyed love. Here I am, having destroyed the greatest gift, feeling utterly worthless, and suicide became an extremely viable option. And I started actually planning how I was going to do it while I was inside of prison. It was really fortunate that a well-timed visit from my best friend of over 30 years turned everything around. And it was from that one visit where I started reinventing and rebuilding. And one of the biggest components is and was forgiving myself for the choices that I made. Those choices, every single time. So my fraud was... It was the hitting the enter on my laptop button, clicking the mouse. It was a series of choices that I made. And every single time that I made that choice, my heart literally whispered to me and said, this is not the way. Don't do this. This is wrong. Don't do it. I mean, it just, it was crystal clear. And I ignored that voice for so long that it just, it disappeared. So when I decided to rebuild and reinvent, forgiveness was paramount for me. It was just such a huge component, but it was not the easiest place t- to get to.
0: Totally, I, totally,
1: It was, it's forgiveness is, and I'm sure you're, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not easy. It's not as simple. In the beginning, I really thought it would be, oh, I forgive myself. You know, I thought I really, in the beginning, I thought I could just say it, and it would work. And of course, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it intrinsically. I didn't believe it at all. And I realized that I didn't trust myself because I ignored that voice that was so crystal clear that told me not to do it. That resulted in a two year prison sentence and absolutely losing everything and planning how I was going to kill myself. I had to build that trust. And that was really, really difficult to to do. And it all started with a quote from the guy that brought us both together, Kamal Ravikan. He actually put up on Twitter, he put up, I don't even know if he knows the impact that this has had on me. I mean, I've, I've <laughs> talked to him, he's a friend, and I, I haven't even told him the impact that this tweet actually had. But it said, the surest path to self-confidence I know is making and keeping commitments. And I read that and it resonated so much with me. And so I started doing that. I started just making and keeping commitments to myself. And the more that I did that, the more that I built that trust. And the more forgiveness... How I mean, what did you... When going through the, your forgiveness journey, it's, it's, it's a journey. And it feels like it goes in phases. So as the more I built trust, the more I was able to forgive myself. But it just wasn't this all-encompassing, one-and-done forgiveness. How about you? What was yours?
0: Yeah, it's definitely not something that, you know, I, I can't just say I love my body and I accept my body the way that it is. And then every single day after that, I love my body and I never have another self-image issue. No, it's literally, it has to be every day. And it was the same thing with, so in Kamal Ravi Khan's book, love yourself like your life depends on it, he talks about the process of forgiveness as basically, I know you know this, this is for listeners, (laughs) Um, basically like you have to write down each thing that you have held against yourself. So whether that is, you know, lying to my parents about drug use, stealing, if that is, um, you know, drinking and driving, cheating on your partner, whatever, however big or small it is, you know, uh, for uh, using the same example that I just used about body image, hating my body, talking negatively about myself and my body and my work ethic and my abilities and, you know, saying, I'm just, I'm not good at this. All of that negative self-talk, those are all things that you're holding on to, you're holding against yourself that you have to forgive yourself for. And the more you hold that inside, what you're saying about this, like commitment to yourself and learning to trust yourself, the more that you're saying those things, it doesn't matter what your actions are. If your words don't follow it, your, your body, your soul does not believe you. I forgive myself for, you know, speaking poorly about my body only forgives it like that day. (laughs) Forgiveness is like, is like love is an ongoing action. And it it really has to be, you know, once, I think once forgiveness and love kind of snowball and like carry each other, I think it's a little bit less, you know, that the forgiveness part needs to be every day you forgive yourself. I think it's kind of, you know, they work so hand in hand that love really can do the work for forgiveness too, once you build the momentum for it. But he also talks about in the book, how we get to this point of coasting. And once you have forgiven yourself, you're like, Well, I never need to apologize to my body again. Like I got this shit and you know, three months into loving yourself. And all of a sudden you're like, fuck, I can't run. You know, one of the things that we connected on, you had mentioned, um, my episode of the edge of fear podcast, who am I? If I'm not, um, it's like two episodes back, I think episode 50 or 51. Uh, and I talk about my identity as a runner. I've been an athlete my whole life. Um, you know i was in the military and during my time in the military i uh in the first 3 months of the military i was in my uh basic training and i got a 300 out of 300% on my physical training test and i actually ended up getting the like third highest mark on pt out of like 3000 soldiers and i got to graduate the top 6 pt of you know 3000 soldiers that that section or whatever, I forget all my military jargon, because this was 12 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, But it was this like confirmation of my identity as an athlete. It was like, that's all that I am. That is my only worth. So when I had that moment, you know, a couple months ago now, where I fell on a one mile run. And then I fell a second time. You know, I made it home. (laughs) I ran home the rest of the way. But like my whole world was shaken by that. And it took me a couple days to really realize that I have put so much worth on this ability, on this value, on this output. Um, and this was. A couple months ago. So this is like two to three years into my journey of loving the self. And I still had that where I was like holding that against myself still. So it is such an ongoing process. And the honesty that it takes to really have to face that, that vulnerability to face that thing that you're holding against yourself, that thing that you're so angry with yourself about, you know, whether you recognize it or not. Like I was proud of that. I was a runner. I was proud of that. I was an athlete, but because I had tied my identity to it, that was the only worth I saw so often in so many cases.
1: What I think there's so much good stuff in there that you hit upon. And one of the first ones was when you were talking about what you had to forgive yourself for. I'm just using, you know, driving while drunk, um, cheating on a partner, whatever it may be. All of those things, also having to say that, having to figure out what to forgive oneself for is also practicing acceptance. And I think practicing acceptance for me literally was the first step that I took in rebuilding and being able to to do that, to confront those truths and say, these are things that I did. And I also love the fact that it's very executable for anybody listening of those things when when you say something like, I can't do that or I'm not good enough it's easy to miss that those are actually things that you can forgive yourself for. You know, those are all, it's just all ammunition that you can use. And I think that's just so brilliant.
0: I... In regards to, I can't do that, I'm not good enough. That brings me back to, at the beginning of your story, you were talking about the imposter syndrome that you had, you know, when you had the fancy cars and the fancy watches and, you know, the nice things, and you still were thinking, I'm not good enough. So it's like a quote that I reposted the other day on Instagram that um, one of the like fitness people that I follow, Anna Victoria, posted. And it was like, uh, me at 16, I hate my thighs. I wish I had my 14 year old body. Me at 20, I wish I had my 18 year old body. Me at 25, I wish I had my 22 year old body. Me at 40, I wish I had my 35 year old body. It was never your body, it's the way that we talk to ourselves. And you're always going to have that, that inner critic, that, you know, that devil on your shoulder saying, you can't do this. Everyone's going to find out you're a fraud. So whether or not you're like making the most possible money, whether or not you're putting out the best value of a product, whether or not you're putting out, you know, your best or worst effort, you are going to still believe that you could have done better. You're not good enough because that's normal. That's human. That's, that's so fucking human of us. And we don't realize it, you know, we we think that if we hit this next plateau, if we hit this next level, that you know happiness and peace will be there. But it it really never is. You have to always actively be working for it.
1: What's what's so great about that is it's the it's the if then scenario. If I make an additional hundred thousand dollars this year, then I'll be happy. Well, you know, you make the additional hundred thousand dollars that year, and you're happy for I was happy for a second. Until then, it was. Well, now I have to get to the next mark. And just that always chasing. And that imposter syndrome is a horrible, horrible feeling. I was always, I was either number one, two, or three in the company year after year. So I had the track record. And yet still inside at meetings, I'd be just be afraid that somebody was just going to, I mean, this is how irrational the imposter syndrome can be. I was in, you know, I'd sit in meetings and I would be worried that somebody would be like, he doesn't know what he's doing. Just point to me in a meeting, you know. Like
0: as if in any world that would happen.
1: Right. But that's what the mind does. and That's how powerful the imposter syndrome is, is that I'm literally thinking that my my peers are going to point to me and be like, nope, nope, all bullshit. Doesn't know what he's doing. Fact
0: check this guy. He's full of shit. Like... (laughs) Like you would ever say that to one of like your coworkers, like you wouldn't. And so realistically, like that probably wouldn't happen. The fear of like, I'm going to get fired. My thing is, I always say he's going to kill me. My dad would always yell at us like he was going to kill us. Never laid a, hang- a finger on us. like, But it, he yelled at us, like put the fear of God into us. So like, I always say like, he's going to kill me. <laughs> and like, I say it about everybody. My boyfriend's like, you can't say that. Like, you can't say people are going to kill you.
1: It's the, it's, and the language that we use, you know, we say that stuff like that kiddingly, oh, he's going to kill me, but we start saying things like that enough, kind of like goes with what you were saying before of having everything in sync, the body starts kind of believing it, you know, we start saying these things enough and the body and the mind start getting in sync on these and all of a sudden we've got a limiting belief, we've got a belief that we're stuck with, that it defines who we are and something that we really are afraid of. And I think that's just so, so powerful to be able to identify that.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I, I I really enjoyed what you were saying about um, like being able to identify and that practice of identifying what it is that you need to forgive yourself for um, and like how to execute like actually forgiving yourself for it um, because the limiting belief, I I love, you're like bringing me right back to like my self-development class that I took last fall, and I'm like, ah, I got it, because like that's, that is the momentum that I have been riding since I've read this book. Um, I really feel like, so it's technically the third day of August, so the third day of the Love Yourself Challenge, but I've been doing it for like a week and a half-ish now of reading, re reading and rereading Kamal ravikan's book, and really like actively taking steps every day towards loving myself. And the first five days of it, there was a quote that I saw on the internet that resonated with me, like within the first few days was, don't dig up in fear what you planted in faith. And the first five days, I was like, this is such bullshit. I am like lying to myself, telling myself I love myself. This is a lie. This is a lie. This is a lie. And by like the sixth of the day, I'm like, i fucking do love myself and i love everybody else and like it is like your perspective and the stories that you tell yourself are your reality that's it the limiting belief the story that we tell ourselves about you know our childhood self and the way that we let our trauma just damage us and break us down and let us think that we deserve anything less than an extraordinary life is the only thing that's holding any of us back from living an extraordinary life. I got into a conversation um, last summer with one of my best friends' wife. Uh, he only has one wife, but my best friend's wife, um, <laughs> one of his best friends' wives. Man, like grammar, punctuation, I don't know. Um, about, cause we were talking about, so this was like before like BLM and all this, like, you know, it's hard to have conversations about privilege now, but like, this was a whole year ago. So this was before this. And we were talking about, um, my, so my best friend was a bartender in school at the time. And she was saying, you know, does he have the same opportunity, my husband with his, you know, he's going to school for like the second or third time as the other guys who are only speaking Spanish or Portuguese in the kitchen. And I was like, well, from my position of privilege (laughs) that I am, you know, very aware of, I believe that if they started reading books and doing Duolingo, which I've now been doing for a year and a half, like and learning, you know, to be able to speak English or fucking French or Dutch or German or whatever the fuck other language they want to speak, because English is not necessarily better. I mean, it's more commonly well, like commonly spoken, but they could start reading and learning other languages and really bettering their situation. But what we choose to do after work instead of, you know, Like you have chosen to write a book. I have chosen to start a podcast. What you choose to do in your additional time is what really fills your cup and what really starts to knock down those limiting beliefs and really is what like changes your, your mindset and your, your whole perspective. And then that's what changes your life. But it's like those daily actions towards that.
1: It's, it's absolutely the daily actions and the small ones completely add up. And I think it's so critically important that to understand that everything is a choice. Absolutely everything that we do is a choice. And it's a question of, like you said, what are we going to do after work? What are we going to do with our free time? And you know, it doesn't have to be self-development all the time, 24-7, because I tried that in prison and it burnt my, it burnt me out completely. Irrelevant.
0: I was going to say, are you sure? But you're 100% right. Like every time I go, you know, too far all in on any one thing, I'm like, mm, two months of this, that was enough. I, it's like not sustainable.
1: It's, it's not sustainable. I don't think it's healthy. Uh, and I would love to, I'd love to circle back to the limiting beliefs because there's a awesome technique that I that I use certainly not mine I forget where I got it from but it's what is true and what is the story and I'll literally I'll give you a very simple example uh, I am a federally convicted felon because of that I'm a terrible human being I'll write that sentence down and I'll identify what is the truth and what is the story the truth is I am a federally convicted felon I mean that's that's true that's there's do a Google search on me. It blows up. Because of that, I'm a terrible human being. That is the story I used to tell myself. And writing it down to identify what is true and what is the story, to delineate the two that way, has been an unbelievably powerful tool for me in anything. It could be you know, uh, using the felon thing again, but because I'm a felon, I will never be able to go on a date you know, not true. Yes, I am a felon, but to say I'm never going to have a girlfriend or go on a date, that's a story. Right. But it's something that I used to believe. Right. And it's just that simple exercise, catching ourselves, and we do that. Because anytime we say something like that, that's a limiting belief, and we can just diffuse it by identifying what part is real and what part is bullshit. Um,
0: to use other examples just to, like, tie it in more for people, um, you know, if someone were abused, uh, or had an alcoholic parent, they could say, I was abused, I'm not lovable, or I can't be loved, or my parents don't love me. Um, Or uh, I've been cheated on, I'm not worth being in a good relationship, something like that, you know, where we tie the result with the beginning. And as soon as you break that tie, as soon as you disconnect the truth from the story you you just like the floodgates open and all of a sudden you're you like start to realize all of these things that you you know you blame yourself for when really they're just part of life part of your story and you know that that's it part of part of life part of your story part of being human like it's, it's it's an important part of your story, honestly, because every piece of our story is what makes us into who we are. Um, and we just, we always have an opportunity to, to reinvent ourselves. I loved that, um, to reinvent ourselves. From any bottom, from any place, you always have an opportunity to reinvent yourself.
1: Always have an opportunity, and it circles right back to everything is a choice. You know, you can choose at any time to reinvent and to start over. And what's so important about that is... It doesn't have to be, it can sound daunting. And I think what ends up happening to a lot of people is, let's say we you know, have a good job as an accountant, and, but you really love photography. It's the all or nothing approach that our brain will trick us in of, I've got to stop being an accountant and I've got to jump 100% into photography and photography has to immediately replace the salary that I get as being an accountant. And that again, is the story coming in. And what I you know, like to encourage people to do is you can still be an accountant, but you can also be a photographer at the same time. Take that free time that you have instead of sitting on the couch or on weekends, bring your camera when you go on trips, start taking photos that you like, identify what kind of photos do you like taking, do you like doing you know, portraits or landscapes or whatever it may be, and to start playing with it. And that way you also, you're living a more fulfilling life, then it starts The slow process of how can I start monetizing it? But it's not this all or nothing. And that's what I think keeps people so stuck.
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. This, the journey of like starting this podcast, I remember, you know, I mean, first of all, I was working, I had just gotten home from, um, my traveling and so I like didn't even write my resume I had worked the same job the whole five years that I was in Boston so I hadn't changed my resume since like 2014 and this was like last summer and I think I like added one I think I added that I had um just backpacked just to like (laughs) you know fill the gap the explain the missing gap of time Um, and I was working for a nonprofit, like an office, you know, administrative position. And I, I wasn't making a lot of money anyway, but I was like, I need to start this passion project because I've already been doing this for like a while. And like my, you know, my gift is my story. And like, I engage people with my story. I know this about myself. Like, I don't want to be on video. So not doing YouTube. So podcast was like the next thing for me. And it was so hard when so many people are like, how are you going to make money on that? And like, so what, you're just going to like do that full time. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm going to do that full time. Like, no, I'm going to be destroying my social life to do this on all the part time that I have. I was also like doing self-development classes and volunteering. Like I don't have any fucking time for this. Like, but you never will. If you wait for the time, it doesn't, more time doesn't show up. You have to make that time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the time is going to pass anyway. We have no exactly. control over that. So you might yeah. as well be doing something that you absolutely love doing. And I love, I love that you brought up you know, the friends who said, oh, are you going to you know, make money doing this? And it's just like, not everything has to lead to money. It doesn't actually have to do that. If we're doing something that is enjoyable and fulfilling, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden makes our jobs a little more tolerable. That's really what's important, is to live that rich, deep, meaningful life. And we do that by doing the things that we actually like doing. And if we're able to monetize them, that's awesome. That's beyond incredible. But at least to have that, instead of saying things like, oh, it's silly, I shouldn't do that because I won't make money. I worked with a client who, he wanted to work with his hands so badly. He's got a good job, but he just wanted to work with his hands. And we uncovered the limiting belief that his parents had told him, you don't do anything unless it's going to pay you. You know, your time is money. And why are you going to do anything if there's not going to be some kind of compensation for it at the end? And as soon as we unwound that for him, the guy's building furniture and he loves it. And people are approaching him to buy it from him. And he's like, I don't even want to sell it. I just like doing it. He's just happy and fulfilled.
0: Uh-huh. And you know, I know so many stories of that, of guys that left, you know, Silicon Valley and like good, like Wall Street jobs and now are making like art and doing perfectly fine and very happy with their art making. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be about the money. If it makes you money, if that's what you're going for, that's so wonderful. But like When I would go back to the office on Monday after doing podcast stuff all of, you know, Friday through Sunday, fucking late night, Monday, early morning, I was so much happier to be in my shitty office cubicle on Monday morning because I was living my passion. And I have connected with so many cool people that I never would have if I didn't do this. Like, there's just, there's just so much more than the mundane, and then what people accept and, and come to expect, um, and I, I'm i so excited that, you know, you are doing this, and I'm, it brings me, again, like, gratitude and, like, excitement for that I'm doing this, and that there, you know, there is so much hope, and I hate to, you know, speak about it in any kind of a negative connotation of life, how stupid would you be to not follow your passion because it's so hard and scary at the beginning. It really is, but it's so fucking worth it. It's so totally, totally worth it. Um, and to be able to help others, you know, along the way. Um, so something I want to kind of bring us back around cause we keep <laughs> going off, but like the story is so important to, you know, any of the connection to any of the the forgiveness to any of the trust building. Um, but so, We were talking about how, you know, you have to be vulnerable in order to forgive yourself um, and how we don't trust ourselves at the beginning. And something that we talked about on our last um, On our preliminary call was how you started to build trust to build trust, I think, with yourself um, after so long of like lying to yourself and, you know, telling these limiting belief stories to yourself. Um, Do you want to talk at all about, like, how to build trust after, you know, a lifetime of telling yourself you're not good enough?
1: That was, it was a, it was a hell of a journey. It really was. It was because of just so many things being ingrained for that long. And it really did start with Kamal's tweet of that making and keeping commitments. The very first one that I did was, I committed to, when I was, I'll backtrack real quickly. After my visit from my best friend that turned my life around, where I said I have, to, I have to give meaning to the suffering. I've got to, I've got to turn this into something. I analyzed my choices and I realized that I made fear-based choices that are what landed me in prison and dealing with the consequences that I created. So my intuition told me that I have to write down all my fears and I have to conquer them one by one. My number one fear was so easy to identify. I've had it for as long as I can remember. It was public speaking. After seeing Kamal's tweet, I had realized, you know, I'd made this commitment in prison to to beat that fear of public speaking. But it was a couple of years at this point, and I hadn't done anything with it. You know, as soon as I got out, I I Googled from the the Brooklyn halfway house, uh, I Googled public speaking and Toastmasters came up. And I I ignored it. I was like, I don't like that answer. I don't know why I didn't like that answer, but it's the only thing that kept coming up was Toastmasters. For anybody who doesn't know, it's an international organization uh, designed to help people with their public speaking and leadership skills. So I just kept on ignoring it and ignoring it. And finally, I made the commitment to go to my first meeting. And I made the commitment that I was, if if given the opportunity, I was going to speak. So I, I, I go standing outside this glass conference room do, uh, room and i could see everybody in there they all know each other i'm freaking out because i'm the outsider they all have a familiarity everybody's smiling shaking hands i, I open the door i walk in it's so generous so gracious i sit down my heart is freaking out and they ask for volunteers and my arm shoots up and i look at my arm and i, go, I was like who the hell did that and it said okay, <laughs> you know you're up they uh they, there's a, a section in the in the Toastmasters meeting where they'll ask you a question. You have two minutes to answer it. So they, they fanned out a deck of cards that have questions on them. And I picked one. The woman read it to me. I can't remember what it was. I spoke though for a whopping 26 seconds. I was absolutely paranoid. And I sat back down in my chair. And this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous. But I said to myself, I was like, I just faced my biggest fear and I didn't die. And right from that point, I realized the power of making and keeping commitments and I built that trust in myself. So it just became that, what else can I commit to? And making it, I commit to doing yoga three times this week. I commit to hitting the gym three times, whatever it is, but just doing that and following up on it. But what I realized was such a critical component of that was to give myself an acknowledgement, to give myself a pat on the back and say, you did it. And I think that's so important is to celebrate our small wins, because there's so much of those limiting beliefs that we don't feel, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it's fairly common. We don't want to, it feels like bragging or something like that. If we accomplish something that we totally. said we were going to do and we, we hide behind that and that's playing small and to really step up and start playing big, say, you know what? I, I, I conquered that fear of public speaking. I did that and to pat myself on the back to give ourselves those small celebrations, it keeps the ball going and it actually trains our brain because our brains are trained to, or the the brains will release little bits of dopamine when we actually do that. So then it becomes a perpetual cycle. We start hitting that little dopamine hit and we get that little bit of a rush. It's like, what else can I do? And that's really how I started building trust was from that one tweet and from that one commitment that I kept. And I think that was just, that started that that ball rolling for me.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's so powerful seeing yourself complete a task, you know, complete a challenge. I'm like big on challenges. Um, but uh, what's his name? Jordan Peterson uh, in his book, 12 Rules for Life talks about, I think it's like chapter nine or something is about trust. And he talks about this, about um, limiting beliefs and about how... You know, when like your place is a mess and you have piles of papers everywhere, you're like, if, basically, if you don't start with like the small pile, you're never going to get to the whole closet. And like, you don't trust yourself because over and over you again, you're saying, I'm going to clean that corner. I'm going to clean that pile. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get to that. And we don't do it. We don't do it. And we don't do it. So he says, you have to like talk to yourself like a child at the beginning and you really do, like, I feel like that is, like, the key, if we, like, treated ourselves as children, and, like, forgave ourselves as children, and if we, like, acknowledge when we did something wrong, if we, like, treated ourselves like a child, and, like, said, like, that was silly, instead of, like, wow, you're a fucking idiot, and I can't believe you did that, because that's the way that we talk to ourselves, and to, like, each other sometimes, like, just jerks, but if we were, like, oh, that was really silly, and, like, but you have to do it better, like, let's, let's try this again next time. Like we have another opportunity next time. And I worked with kids for a long time. I know that if you threaten them and tell them you better do this better next time, that doesn't work. Like that does not work under any circumstances. So why would it work for me? So if I clean up the pile of papers, then I can take myself out for coffee or I, then I've earned my nature walk or something like some small reward to acknowledge that like, yes, I kept my promise to myself. And that was a positive thing. I should get a positive reward. And it's like, so simple. Kamal Ravikant talks about it so many times in the book about how the rules are so simple, like these, the lessons, they're so simple, but it's like, because of how easy they are, we don't think we need to like follow the step-by-step instructions. Um, I read a book, I think it was, um, by James Clear, the, the Atomic Habit or something, right?
1: Yeah, Atomic Habits, James Clear, yep.
0: Yeah, Um, and he talks about the compounding effects of our, you know, of our positive habits. And like, you don't write a book by blocking off three months to write the book. You write a book in 30 minute intervals every day or two hour blocks every day. And every project doesn't get done in, one week every project doesn't get done in one month or half a year you it doesn't work like that it's little by little we have to chip away and little by little we have to rebuild that trust and little by little we have to forgive ourselves until we believe ourselves and clean up the pile
1: the something so so important in that is what i learned on my journey of going through these things and i'll use public speaking again as an example because in february of this year i delivered a tedx talk. And that was the culmination of that original goal, five years in prison. When I said that I'm gonna beat my fear of public speaking, the the biggest stage that I could think of was the TED TEDx stage. So I made that goal five years ago. And it was these incremental steps of going to the meetings, of building my public speaking, of learning how to write a, a good speech, having that conversation on stage, being able to do all those things. And this ties into what you were saying. It's the It's the chipping away. But what is so unbelievably important is the process is the reward. That's what is so easy for people to miss. It is the process is the reward. When I delivered that TED, yeah, I felt absolutely incredible that I had beat and and conquered and, and got this goal. But I realized all the work that I had done for those five years, that's actually the reward. That is mine forever. Who I had to become to be able to do that, that is mine forever. And that's the same with you writing the book as an example. I, another part of my building up trust, I, used, I did two hour blocks. Like you had said, I actually did two hour blocks and I did that for three years straight. Putting aside two hour blocks. Yeah. Yep. I mean, three years. Not and knowing- And some it-
0: days you won't write in the two hours. Some days it'll be shit. Like, and oh. people forget about that. A lot of days are just shit and you block off the whole time you don't get anything else done and you don't get anything real done either.
1: More more often than not, it's shit. Right, exactly. It's more, <laughs> more often, it's, it's a, writing is a, I don't know, I mean, I'm already planning my second book and part of me is like, why the fuck would I possibly do that? Writing right. is a miserable process. Yeah. But I, but I absolutely love it at the same time. Yeah. And it's yeah. just that, it, it's exactly, it's, it's not only writing a book, but it's like this personal development journey that you and I are both on. Some days are going to be really friggin' hard. You know, we can have an idea of where we're going and what we want to achieve. And there are some days we just are like, no, I'm not going to love myself today. No, I'm not going to do these things. And it feels like shit. And it's really hard to to move forward. But as long as we still have it in the back of our mind and we continue to make progress and not let that voice of doubt win and stop the progress altogether. But it's not it's not easy. It's knowing there are bad days. Totally. And,
0: and like accepting that that's going to be part of it. And like, that's okay. That that's normal. Um, I'm thinking of, and like in comparison with, you know, your beginning days with, um, Toastmasters and like learning to overcome that fear. Um, you know, the first 10 to 15, um, recording sessions that I had, I either had like a script written up completely, like episode one, the pilot is literally a a script that I read and I read and recorded it like seven times. And I was like, this one is close enough. And now I'm like, you know, Still, like, I get, like, a stomachache before I come on to record. I'm still very nervous, but you don't know it anymore. Like, you probably wouldn't even know it if you looked at, back at the pilot. It's not great, but it's not the worst thing ever in the world. Like, and everybody has to start from somewhere. Like, you got to start. You have to just start, though.
1: That's that's the key, is just taking that first step. I mean, what is it? Lao Tzu, um, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Yep that's just all you have to do.
0: Um, so something that I definitely want to talk about, um, because now we've referenced like a couple of different books and authors. Um, and we talk a little bit about how, you know, it was through, uh, the book, love yourself, like your life depends on it is how we connected. Um, but you talked about how important reading was, um, during the time that you were in prison. Um, and I talk about it a lot on the podcast, just, For me, reading really opened up my world to the fact that everybody makes mistakes, everybody is human, and like that's part of this experience. Um, One of the first books that I read, uh, you know, kind of as my ex and I were breaking up, maybe um, right after or right before, uh, was this book, oh shit, who, what is it, Um, um, Amir Levine, Oh my God, I reference this book all the time. What is it? Stop, hold on, pause, pause recording. Amir, what do you mean? Attached, I knew it was a single word, okay. Um, so the book is attached. And so it really helped me, It's t- it talks about the attachment styles and so how um, people are one of three attachment styles. I'm not gonna try and name them because it just took me 10 minutes to try and come up with the name of the book. Um, but he talks about the attachment styles that we have. and uh, a girlfriend of mine who had recently also gone through a breakup recommended it to me. And I, as I'm reading it, it like freed me from all of the guilt that I had for ending this relationship where neither he nor I were that happy, but I had this heavy, heavy guilt that I ruined both of our lives. I will never find a new partner. I will be alone forever and life is over. Life as we know it ceases to exist. And I read this book and it was like, no, he was avoidant and I was anxious. And those two attachment styles conflict and they clash and they make each other shit. And that's what happened. And, and now it's like, okay, as a matter of fact, if I seek a partner who is this, or if I become a more secure partner, I will, you know, and now that I am aware of all of these things that I am, I've just identified more about myself, you know, it, it was so much easier. I, I mean, I didn't seek a partner after that. Like Joey and I fell into each other's lives and, and meshed so well together. There was like no denying the magic of our relationship instantly, but it wasn't, it wasn't through magic. It was through reading and self-discovery and like learning about myself and identifying, you know, the ways that I am and the ways that I want to grow. And, and it was in this whole journey. Um, but reading was so much a part of my you know, my leaving, my living on my own, my leaving the country, backpacking, like, I didn't, I don't think I read a book for, like, leisure, pleasure, not recreational use, not for school, since I was, like, 12 years old, so I was, like, 29 when I started, like, kind of reading, and, like, listening on audio, I was listening to podcasts a little bit, but, like, I now don't go more than, like, two weeks without reading something, and sometimes I don't finish the books, but, like, Reading has been absolutely pivotal for me through this, and I think so many people just don't even see the importance of it, and it's like huge, so I loved that about your story, hit me
1: with it. It's, reading is, it's such a huge part of my story. There's, A, there's not a lot to do in prison, and, (laughs) and B, I was really lucky that we had an amazing library in prison. We had about 7,500 books. And as an inmate, you can actually receive books. So my family was unbelievably generous and they sent me a ton of stuff. But to be able to to explore those different worlds and to learn about new things. And for me, two books in prison that really stand out. Uh, One is Unbroken by uh, last name Hildebrand. I'm I'm forgetting the first name, but uh, Angelina Jolie turned it into a movie. And it's just about the of uh, uh, somebody in the army or Marines who's captured and just tortured. And just I mean, it's it's such a perspective shifting book. And one of my fellow inmates handed it to me when I was a few weeks in because I was doing what most inmates do. I was complaining about being there and that I shouldn't be there and, you know, playing the victim card and all that stuff. And he was like, read this. And, and he's got, I'll give you a brief briefest summary that he used to tell people. This guy's plane was shot down over the Pacific. And he and this other guy had a life raft. On the first night, the other guy ate all of the chocolate, which was all the food that they had. All of it in the first night. Oh, done. So no. now we're, they're out in the middle of the Pacific. The guy who ate the chocolate ends up dying. So now this guy is all alone. A Japanese, because it's World War II, a Japanese fighter plane finds him in the middle of the ocean and starts shooting at his inflatable raft. He has to jump out of the raft to avoid the bullets, but now the sharks have found him, so he's surrounded by sharks, so he has to jump into shark-infested waters. And when the sharks get too close, he has to jump back in the boat, hope that the plane is not overhead, shooting at him. (laughs) And he's got to do this back and forth until the plane finally leaves him alone. And the way my friend tells the story, he says all that my fellow inmate. And he goes, and that's the best that his life got. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. And it was just this perspective shifting book for me. And then the second book that I still will, I reread a minimum once a year and I will grab it off my bookshelf and I'll read highlighted passages. And I recommend it to every single person. I think it should almost be mandatory in school is Man Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl. That is such a powerful, important book that I think everybody should absolutely read. That has shaped the way that I look at things and shaped my perspective. And the short synopsis of that is, Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor. And it's just his journey through that and finding hope and meaning in that environment. And it just is, if you don't mind, I'll just share one quick perspective shifting story. It was, he was in, it might've been, he went through five or six different camps. So this one might've occurred in Auschwitz. And one of his fellow prisoners was having a nightmare, horrible nightmare. He was shaking and screaming. And Viktor Frankl went to wake him up and he stopped himself and he scolded himself. He goes, why am I doing that? Because no matter what he's experiencing right now in that dream, as bad as it may be, if I wake him up, I'm waking him up into something that is worse than whatever his nightmare is. And that to me was such a punch in the face. And I realized if I complain about things, if I feel sad for myself, if I feel like I'm the victim, I'll go to that story and it just resets me. So those were, those are two really important ones. There's Kamal's book. Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends Upon It is one of the most important books I've read as well and followed up by Live Your Truth, his other book. Uh, that one, live your tr- I love both of them, Live Your Truth for some reason because i really, I read that in the Brooklyn Halfway House. That one stands out to me so powerfully. That one is just like, I'm, I'm rereading it right now. I read a chapter out of it every morning.
0: I have to, I haven't read Live Your Truth yet, but I feel like so much also like the books that we read or the movies that we watch or the videos or the motivational speaks that we, or whatever things that we listen to, um, it also just so depends on where you are in your life in that moment that sometimes they are just so much more powerful or like just so much more resonate with you. Um, but I am really excited to read Love Your Truth. I think I'm definitely on the momentum for that one. Um, but I just, uh, there was, you know, I think the, the common denominator for all of these, um, you know, books that we've read and, you know, the book that connected us through Kamal is they all tell the human story. And I think that that's what kind of like resonated with you and I was like the way that we are you know, both following our own passion and like surveying the world and like doing what we want to do is through like our own story. You know, it's, it's so important, I think, for human connection. Um, And that is ultimately like why I started the podcast completely is because I realized that above all things, what I felt like I was missing in my, you know, last relationship was human connection. I felt like we weren't seeing each other as humans. We were seeing each other just as like, you know, roommates, partners, whatever, but it wasn't like the whole picture. And I would meet, we would meet strangers together at the bar or, you know, at a party or whatever, but I was connecting with everybody else so much differently. And I was like, why is this like lacking so much? And, you know, now, a few years later, I realized that I always had the ability to connect with people, but it wasn't until I realized that, like, your whole story really is what paints the whole picture. And, like, that's where you, you offer, you know, you always offer so much to others and vice versa. People offer so much to you, um, but we so often just, like, don't. Connect and don't tell our stories because we are afraid of being vulnerable because we are afraid to you know expose ourselves we're so afraid of what other people will think because look at what you know look what I think of myself I think I'm a piece of shit who's not worth it then what are you gonna think of me you know what I mean like it's the way that we talk to each other reflects in why we are so disconnected from one another we don't want to share
1: our our stories are our power they totally. really are, they are our power and they are so critically important to share because what, not only it's got, it's got a, two benefits to it. Not only do we, when we share, we're no longer carrying that burden. You know, we're no longer carrying the, you know, for me, it was shame. It's the shame of being a federally convicted felon. You know, I carried that for a very long time and I knew that if I didn't own my story, my story was gonna own me for the rest of my life. And if I allowed my story to own me for the rest of my life, then others are going to judge me because I'm a convicted felon. But by owning my story, very interesting thing has happened. Nobody judges me poorly anymore. I'm sure there's people out there, maybe even people listening right now, be like, you committed a crime. You're a piece of shit. That's okay. I don't let that in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's not for you. That's their, that's their problem. That's their trigger. You know. That's, it's literally right. not for you.
1: It's, it's not. It, yeah, exactly. It's not for me. And get to that point. And, you know, you're so open with your story as well. It's the owning the story and sharing it. And when we do that, the second part of the equation that's so important is that we give people permission to do the same. Mm-hmm. When we're vulnerable, we give people permission to be vulnerable. And we allow them to shine a light on their shame or whatever it is that's telling them that they can't tell that story. Yeah. And that's why it's so, anybody who's, you know, I honestly think anybody who's been through, who's been through the shit. know i know that i feel i have an obligation to to share Mm -hmm. because you have no idea the ripple effects that your story may have on somebody you may and you may never know you know you may that person may never reach out or contact you but you never you never know in kamal's book you know he talks about getting emails from people and i was one of them you know um that people who are like, you know, I was planning on killing myself, but your, you know, book changed my life. That's like, that's mind blowing to think right. to, you know, by sharing your story. And I've, I've had somebody actually say that to me that, you know, that between my Ted and other content that I've put online, they, you know, they told me that they were planning on killing themselves. And when they saw my talk and they read some other stuff that I put out there, they're like I'd stopped thinking about it.
0: I mean, That's n- knowing that you're not alone in this world, that someone else has gone through this, this exact same darkness. That was something that like really carried me so much through basic training was like every time I wanted to quit, it was like 500 million other people have done this, you know, however many people there were in the middle? like so many, but before me, you know, have done basic training and like, I can do this. And it's not always that simple and it's not, you don't always see yourself walking in the path that exactly someone has done. So when suddenly someone is publicizing that they actually have had a very similar path, they have been in the shit like you are now or like you have been and, you know, have risen from the ashes. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fucking powerful. I love when people tell me that I've impacted them at all. I'm like, oh, you impacted me, you know, or maybe they didn't. And it doesn't matter because Kamal did and because you did and, you know, he did and whatever. Like, you never know. And your story is so much bigger than you. And if you hold it in, You're just going to go, like, you're going to still go through the the next wave of darkness. It's going to hit because it always does. Like, there are highs and lows. So either way, but like, when you share your story, when you retell the story, you shine a light on it for yourself. So you remember I got through it that time. So I'll get through it this time. And you give other people the highlighter too, to be like, and look, here's the part where I went through that exact thing and like, thought I was, you know, a worthless piece of shit who should die. Like, I thought that, you know, and here I am.
1: Right. And I I love the fact that you said you turn a light on it because shame lives and breathes in the dark. And it tells us so much of, I think, not sharing our stories is shame and just that embarrassment of sharing, you know, we're going to be judged. We're going to be, you know, looked at poorly. We're going to be kicked out of the tribe, if you will, you know, for sharing our story. Mm -hmm. And that's all just pure shame. And it tells us it lives and breathes in the dark, tells us that we are alone. And the second that we start having these conversations, we may have very different Everybody does, everybody's got a way different journey, but emotions themselves, those are universal.
0: Right. We all
1: experience them in our own way with our own nuances, but shame, happiness, anger, sadness, they all feel pretty much the same to, to every single person. We all kind of, ex- we, we know when you say I'm sad, you know what that, you immediately know what that feels right. like to the other person. You can feel it in, your, in yourself. And what's so important about telling our stories is, the, the story, the path may, is different for everybody. But that emotion that we tap into when we tell our stories, that's universal and that's where we connect.
0: Yeah. And because you're human and because, you know, you're telling me the story and I can feel your sadness in the story. So I envision myself in that story, in that position. And I imagine the sadness that I would you know, have, if I were in that situation and that's a little bit of empathy, but that's also just human connection. Like when somebody tells you a story about a thing that happened to them, that was like, you know, the most amazing, wonderful thing. If you have love in your heart in that moment, you're going to feel like happiness for them. If you're like feeling, you know, super, angry or aggro sad you might feel jealous and you know that's another situation but like for the most part like we do we we feed off of each other's emotion um and i think part of like why i realized and how i realized that like storytelling was so much of part of my superpower was because i know that like i have the i have an energetic storytelling you know way about me and so when I was writing my blog, I was gonna say handwriting, but like, yeah, right, still, it was two years ago. When I was writing my blog on the internet, <laughs> typing it, um, it it wasn't as powerful. And like, you could relate to the words, but like, I can't, I can't tell like a 20 minute story if you're like not really invested, you're gonna give up after three minutes. Like that's just statistically, most people give up on blogs in three to four minutes. So like you might give a podcast episode 20 to 30, like that's fantastic. And you might even come back to it another time if you liked it. Um, but by by saying it, um, Brene Brown talks about this so much in her um, shame research. And I, I, I'm like the biggest Brene, Brand, Brene Brown fan. Um, but she says that uh, shame, no, like silence and darkness is a petri dish for shame or something like that. And so by like secrecy, by keeping it a secret, by not sharing it, whatever it is, if the te- if you come home from school, you're seven years old and your teacher said your horse doesn't look like a horse, you're not creative and you don't tell anybody that shame. If you feel like a little bit bad about it, but it's not shame and you go home and say, "Mommy, this teacher said that I can't draw and mommy says, you know, that teacher doesn't know what she's talking about. You are creative, don't worry about it. Like, and and we're gonna keep drawing at home and, and you're gonna love drawing. Then it's not shameful anymore. You know, that, that teacher said that, that teacher was wrong. It's not this, this limiting belief that I carry with me for the rest of my life that I'm not a creative because I told, somebody, the story, and we were able to shine the light on the shame. And now I don't have to, maybe I'll still fight that shame a little bit. Maybe I'll still in the back of my mind, always think I'm not that creative. And I need that little bit of, you know, positive reinforcement. I need that little bit of love and encouragement to know like, okay, I still am creative, but when we don't tell anybody, when you just bring that horse to the trash and rip it right up and don't tell anybody about it and you live in that embarrassment and that shame and that fear, and you think, you know, forever you relive those shameful moments of your class laughing at you or the cops coming to get you or getting that phone call saying you are in trouble for or kicked out of or, you know, whatever it is, those moments that just haunt us, you release that when you forgive yourself, you release that when you share your story and when you connect with people about it. Um, And... You know, we have such an opportunity to do it in this day and age, in this, you know, this world of social media, this medium that, you know, because we read the same book, we are now doing a podcast episode together. Like,
1: it's So cool. Yeah. It's just amazing that we were able to connect in that way. I mean, it's just such a testament. And I really like the example that you gave, because it really ties into everything we were talking about and the limiting beliefs and everything. It can start, It most of them start exactly like you're saying, that young kid. If the horse doesn't look like a horse, the person doesn't say anything, and then all of a sudden, for the re- remainder of their life, there's a 65-year-old person who's like, I'm not creative.
0: And a horse <laughs> might make you feel really bad. Like, seeing, like, an artistic horse, you might be like, ugh, like, that might spiral you. Those triggers are real small sometimes.
1: Really small, and it's, it's akin to throwing a snowball at the top of a mountain. It just gains momentum, and it's an avalanche by the time it gets to the bottom. It just totally. grows and grows just from that one little comment from somebody who honestly wasn't thinking.
0: Yeah, and probably never thought about it again. Didn't right. mean to hurt your feelings like, you know, doesn't care that much like and we just we give we give the the fear or the the shame gremlin so much power and we give the other person the power and we let ourselves play the victim to it so it's there's there's a lot i mean again like we could just unpack this for like forever um but i want to thank you so much um for coming on today if you have anything that you want to wrap up with us um that i know there were a couple things that we didn't talk about but if there's like any like kind of final notes
1: well actually you know what i i love this line um that i wrote in my in my book and i think it's just so important to what we were saying it's your past cannot define you without your consent and i actually put that up on instagram today that was my caption today um or my my quote that i put up today but i think it's just so important to everything that we were talking about and how we just were wrapping up with shame is just that our past it, it cannot define us without our consent we're the ones who let that in and it's just telling the stories and moving through and sharing it, even if it's just with one person, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to get up on a Ted stage, but it's just talking to your best friend, even, you know, some of those stories that are powerful enough that we don't share them with our friends. And those are the ones that we really need to the most to shine that light on it. Cause it's just so critically important.
0: That really does tie an ice bow around everything that we were kind of talking about really perfectly um and like just to that like final thing like sometimes it is hardest to open up to friends and family about the thing that you're most ashamed of i highly recommend releasing it to strangers because it still lifts a heavy weight off of you and then you don't have to see them again and it makes it a little bit easier to share it you know with people that I don't want to say you should share it with, but other people that are, you know, a part of your life and because that's when you really get that freedom is when you really are like living your truth, standing in your truth, standing in your, you know, all of it. Like, that's when the freedom is, is when you really like face it all and, and forgive yourself for all of it.
1: That was absolutely beautiful and you nailed it. And what a, what a great tool though too, just so accessible is to talk to somebody where there's not as much of an emotional connection where you're gonna feel even more. And I mean, wherever, wherever that may be, and it's it's just as powerful as telling somebody that you are close to. It's yeah. just speaking the words. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who it's to. It's just speaking them, just getting it out. And I, I pr- anybody who's listening to this, I promise, the weight that is going to get lifted off of your shoulders. And when you realize you've been carrying that burden for however old you may be, 25, 26, 36, 49, whatever it may be, you've been carrying it for that long. That weight is just going to be, you're going to be like, Holy shit. I'm a whole new person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Spilling those secrets, man. It feels so good. <laughs> it really does. All right, Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, where can we find you?
1: can find me at my website, craigstanlund.com. I hang out on Instagram a lot, craig underscore Stanland. And also, I am launching a Kickstarter campaign to fund self-publishing my book called The Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. It's going to be launched on August 11th. If anybody could check it out, I would be ever so grateful. And thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and I will recommend to anybody um, who's listening to definitely donate if you're able to. Um, I told Craig last week that uh, I did a GoFundMe to get the edge of your podcast started. Um, and you guys helped me out so much. Uh, if you're able to give a little bit to Craig, uh, self publishing is awesome, awesome, awesome. And it really. Uh, Elevates what we're able to see the same with independent filmmaking independent independent book publishing is so so important for what we have access to. Um, So again, Craig, thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Liz. This was awesome. All right. Bye. Bye.